You're listening to The Conversation. I'm Angus Anderson. I'm Micah Saul. And I'm Neil Prendergast. And if you're just tuning into the series, you may want to check out an earlier episode where we lay out the whole premise of The Conversation. Yeah, these are our final episodes. They were all recorded in 2013, and we've just been horrifically lazy about getting them packaged up for you. But they are now ready, and here they are. Today, an interview with Charles Hugh Smith, an alternative economics blogger from the Bay Area. The way we got to him, actually, is that he was recommended uh, by a listener, so it was really nice to have that back and forth with our audience. He's a really interesting thinker. He's self-taught. He's got a background in philosophy, but he's worked in a whole gamut of different areas. But he's been doing economics blogging because it is his passion. CNBC listed him as one of their top alt-economics bloggers. So it was really nice of him to carve out a little time and sit down for a conversation. And speaking as the one who interviewed him, this was one of the most conversational conversations I've had. It never felt like a single answer was boilerplate. And that is always refreshing. So without further ado, here's Charles Hugh Smith. We're in an era of overlapping crises, and I think that's what makes it sort of unique. We're aware of um, the financial aspect, which is um, sort of exponential increase in debt. We're also aware that energy, the cost is going up because we're reaching into farther, deeper and and more expensive reserves of energy, at least fossil fuels. So that's another If not crisis, then, um, well, actually it is a crisis because the world we've constructed is based on cheap fossil fuels. And so anything that changes that creates a chronic crisis. And then I think um, consumerism as a way of life and as a guiding philosophy for the financial sector and the economy as a whole, I think that has sort of run out of air, you know, that we've reached this sort of marginal return on on consumption as the guiding philosophy, not just for economic growth, but for meaning in our lives. Like we identify who we are with um, the signifiers that we're able to purchase and consume. And then we can also look at, say, um, just resources in general, not just uh, energy, but soil, which is being depleted, fresh water, which is uh, under pressure, and a certain of the minerals. And so that's the general context of my work as these four overlapping crises. If, it's, if the current system's logic continues, what does that look like? We can separate the financial from the material. Okay. So the, the financial, there will be a crisis within, say, I'd say 10 years. Maybe you can stretch it out to you know, 12 years. But somewhere relatively soon, this whole thing of exponential debt being built on an economy that's basically flatlined in the real world, that's going to need to be reset. And the only way that it can be reset is all that debt's liquidated. It's either destroyed by crisis or it's forgiven or it's defaulted on. And so that's guaranteed. That's just mathematics. And so that's why guys like Chris Martinson, who come from a scientific background, they look at the math of, of, of debt at the government and private sector levels, and they go, this, this is, there's no way this is sustainable. And so that's one thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean we, we all have to be like starving in the streets because the material economy is still like oh, how much food is grown, how much energy is extracted, and how is it distributed. That, I think, 
will will partly depend on on energy. And a lot of people are now um, convinced that there's going to be tons of fossil fuels forever because of fracking and um, new technologies, extracting more oil out of out of old wells and all that kind of thing. I look at that and go, that's all fine and good. And maybe even if you said it was infinite, if the cost is five times more than it is now, then that doesn't work for the economy we have, which is, requires cheap energy. I was talking to uh, John Fullerton. Are you familiar with him of the Capital Institute? Yes, a, l- a little bit. Okay, we were talking about uh, the sort of terrible fork in the road that he feels we're at. He said, basically, let's let's not even worry about energy limits. Let's say you've got all the energy you want. But to burn it, you still have to deal with the climatic repercussions of that. So essentially, if you want to keep the climate in an even remotely tolerable zone for doing anything else in the world, farming or living, you basically have a lot of energy that maybe exists in the ground, but you just can't burn. And you're saying, so we can either go down the road where we, we say in advance, let's not burn that. And then you write off the value of all of that, which collapses the value of all these energy companies on the stock market and causes a systemic problem that radiates out from that with panic and with poor distribution based on just panic. So that's what you need to do to save the environment. And he said, of course, you could not save the environment. Let's say you just burn all that stuff. And then you you have a true environmental problem with food distribution issues that could lead to some sort of panic that collapses the stock market, then precipitates that. And so he saw it as sort of this no-win scenario, but one of those ways really hurts the physical world that we live in, not only for us, but for other creatures as well. What do you think of that scenario? Are we in one of these kind of lose-lose whatever we do with the current market? The uh, biologist E.O. Wilson, he wrote a book, I, I forget the exact title, but his thinking is similar in life on planet Earth. A lot of people see this same kind of cone you're describing where the number of species that are being driven to extinction and um, the disruption of these ecosystems is just reaching a critical phase based on burning huge quantities of coal and, um, and a strip mining the ocean. So there's, you know, totally disrupting those ecologies. And it, you can't go back and fix that stuff. <laughs> you know, we can't bring species back. We can't bring the ocean ecology back after we've eliminated all the, the the whole food chain. So I think there is a point where, you know, you can't go back and fix that stuff with just more money. That's kind of the intellectual paradigm we have as well. All you need is more money. If you're burning too much coal, then you spend money and put a scrubber on that chimney stack or whatever. And so the idea that no amount of money can fix the problems, that's part of the kind of the end of capitalism thinking that I'm uh, pursuing, you know, that the whole model is broken. Mm -hmm. Then I I take your question as sort of like, well, it's an organizational one. Is there some other way that we could organize life such that we could get by as a species on 10% of the energy we now spend? And I think the answer is, well, clearly, yes, we could. So then it's like, how do we organize that rationally? And, and do you buy his description where we have that fork in the road with two options that lose, but one that takes out the environment? Or is there a way to ignore that fork in the road entirely? Is there a third way that gets you to this minimal energy scenario without, say, an economic collapse that leads to panic? You know, because it seems like a big, a big theme of this is that everything is so interconnected that it doesn't matter what's materially out there, right? There's the psychological aspect of if the market collapses, then... Mm-hmm distribution breaks down and that that kind of snowballs in a way 
Yeah, I, I agree with the domino sequence there. And um, I consider it a positive if the financial situation like collapses. In other words, if all of our financial wealth vanishes, what impact does that actually have? And um, if we follow that through it, it leads to some interesting questions because most of us don't control enough wealth to really make a difference. And so what we're really talking about is, is the loss of all financial wealth really only affects the one-tenth of one percent who own like 80 percent of the assets. And so if they were wiped out, how bad would that be for the rest of us? Well, it might be good. Mm-hmm. But would it lead to a, to a distribution problem? a panic that would affect everyone else. So maybe they would lose a lot of wealth, but in the process, their companies would stop functioning. You know, we have a very distributed food system, for example. So if there was a financial panic and the top lost the wealth and their companies fell into disarray, would Walmart then be shipping produce to all of these towns that aren't ready to grow anything and where the local population doesn't have the knowledge to grow things? You know, so that's where I wonder, in the short term, do you face a real crisis even if it is in the long term a positive thing. Because I've had several people in the series, I'm thinking of Jan Lundberg down in Santa Cruz, talking about, you know, crisis could be catharsis, you know, and lead to a better state. But I always wonder, well, what does that crisis look like? And how many people die just because of our own inefficiencies and our own panic mechanism, our own herd mentality? Yeah, and that's, um, that's, that's a question that's really hard to answer because there's so many variables. My sense is there's a lot of people, and this is the positive part, who are trying to set up parallel systems. Of course, we're still dependent on these large infrastructures, you know, the Internet and the the power grid and all that. But to whatever degree we can, I think we need to create a parallel system, not only of values, but of ways of using the energy and and the infrastructure that if we can distance ourselves from these cartels, the more the better. So if they survive they're not going to um, impact us so much. And if they crumble or devolve, then we've separated ourselves out. And so that's the whole idea of the relocalizing economy that you can say, well, you know, the farmer's market can't replace Walmart, but can it replace the fresh fruits and vegetables that Walmart doesn't have or that it only has a selection or that Walmart flew in those grapes 6,000 miles from Chile? Can it replace some part of that? And so the more that we can replace, the better. That's how I would kind of phrase it. Some communities are going to do better than others because they've built a little bit of resilience. That would be hopeful in the sense that there's a model that other people can quickly follow. And because of the Internet, we now have a way to spread that kind of knowledge extremely quickly. You go, well, wait a minute. You're talking about like the real world. Can gardening spread that fast? Can Zipcar spread that fast? And, And I'm saying I think in terms of social innovation, yes, it can. It can spread as fast as technology because it's enabled by technology. And so I'm I'm a little more hopeful that uh, parallel systems can arise as these centralized systems decay or devolve. So I have one foot in that camp that recognizes the power of the local economy and and the real world. And then I also have a foot in the camp of, gee, this 3D printer is going to wipe out a bunch of cartels because we don't need these 6,000-mile supply chains to China anymore because you can buy like a desktop 3D printer for three grand or something. And if you put that in a community workshop where a bunch of people can rent it for like 10 bucks an hour, suddenly you have like a a nexus of potential innovation without a 6,000-mile supply chain controlled by a centralized corporation, controlled by a central state. Kind of the the big thrust in terms of what you'd want to see happening now would be 
local, parallel, resilient, small-scale systems. Yeah. And why would that be something we'd want to do? Well, two reasons. One is it's more fun and it feels better. With the caveat that we can actually support that this is a healthier environment with data, Uh, just like there's endless reams of data to support the Mediterranean diet is like the key to longevity and the community that goes with that kind of lifestyle is part of that longevity. That's that's been studied to death and, and it's supported by data. But then there's also that the technological or economic argument is the 3D desktop fab technology enables faster, better, cheaper, at least in, in certain areas. And so in those areas, it's actually more efficient and cheaper than Walmart. With 7 billion people on the planet, could you have any other kind of model? You know, when I think of, of societies where people had a much more direct vested connection to the community, it seems like they were small and primitive in a way that, uh, well, we don't know how to be small with 7 billion people and we don't want to be primitive, right? Yeah, and and this is where it's really interesting to consider Tainter's view of complexity and maybe tease apart the parts of our lives that are complex. And so if you say, um, let's take the whole internet, it's very complex in all of its workings, but in terms of its energy consumption, it's about 2% of energy use, I think. All the servers, the whole deal. That's still a considerable amount of electricity. But it's a tiny percentage of the electricity compared to air travel, uh, transportation, heating and, and cooling, you know, millions of buildings. And so we could say, is it sustainable to maintain the Internet complexity? On a, just a straight energy level, you'd have to say yes. And then you say, well, what about all the complexity that the Internet generates or enables? And then you go, well, if it's not an energy drain, there's really no material reason why that, that's not sustainable. And so the, the complexity that seems unsustainable to me is the marginal return kind of thing. And, you know, there's lots of examples of that flying in grapes from countries 6,000 miles away. Is that really wise? What if we just chose to eat some other fruit or vegetable that was local? This makes me think of when I was talking to David Corton, he was outlining this big economic problem. And I was saying, okay, well, what do you do about it? And he said, you reduce waste. You can have access to all these things that give you qualitative richness, say, mm-hmm. through the Internet, all that information. And yet you can massively reduce. You can get rid of the car. You know, you don't have to live in the suburb. And, of course, what I w- always want to know about something like that, and this was a question I was talking about with uh, my co-hosts afterwards, is to have that little connection to the Internet. Can that exist at all without the giant high-energy framework elsewhere? You know, One of my friends is um, Jim Kunstler the author of um, The Long Emergency, and his view is um, we're going to go back to a world made by hand. In other words, we're going to lose all this uh, technological complexity because of the same dynamic you just described. It requires this gigantic structure. And if you lose the the huge uh, industrial structure, then you lose the technology. I'm not so sure, personally, because of the, like, uh, digital fab revolution, the so-called desktop 3D printing and so on. It could be that a lot of the parts to the technology will be able to be designed and and manufactured on a very small scale. And then that would open up a lot of doors to keeping all this electronic technology uh, affordable. The hypothetical situation I talk about with my co-hosts will be like, you want to make something like this recording device that we're using here. It's a solid state recorder and it's full of integrated circuits. It's full of exotic rare earths that come from all over the world. 
does digital fabrication allow you to make this in a local way? Yeah, I think there's a bit of sleight of hand there that that like the actual ICs, the in- integrated circuits, they're they're made in like these enormous fabs that cost like two billion dollars. Right, and there's no way to really quite fake that. No, there isn't. In an idealized system, <laughs> then you'd have a fab, uh, like an IC fab like that, located next to a big hydroelectric dam or some sort of energy source that wasn't like coal-fired or whatever, because that fab uses a lot of power, but it, it generates tens of millions of chips at an incredibly low cost. And so that's something that you'd say, well, look at the power, uh, the enabling power of those little 10-cent chips. Globally, if we needed a billion chips or 10 billion chips, how much would this cost us in terms of, of energy consumption? It would, again, be like something like 1% or less. So I think you've made a compelling argument that you could probably keep a lot of the goodies in a very efficient system, at least the electronic goodies, maybe the complex goodies, but maybe not the heavy industrial goodies like the car. One of the other themes I, I constantly write about is um, social innovation. Uh, one of the things that authors like Jim Kunstler focus on is um, most people look to technology to solve all problems through what he calls magic. In other words, we don't really understand how it's all going to work, but we're going to get hydrogen and unlimited supplies from ocean, and they're going to like dig down two miles and get this um, solid methane and do some miraculous thing to it. And of course, the more you know about the actual technologies of energy, the more amazed you are that it's as cheap as it is. Because, I mean, drilling a hole like 10,000 feet deep and then fracking it and then extracting this stuff and then taking it to this gigantic refinery, it's so immense and costly. It's a miracle that we even have any gasoline at less than 100 bucks a a gallon. And so that kind of magic, I don't believe in. But on the other hand, desktop 3D, it is a sort of magic. And so I think we have to kind of separate out the magic from the technology that can be localized and could actually be cost effective. And then social innovation doesn't require any money at all. For instance, um, there's like Zipcar and, and share rides. That's one vehicle that's shared by maybe five people or even 10 people. So let's say that you had one vehicle and you had a, a much more efficient system than we have with Zipcar. Then we're basically eliminated 90% of the autos through a social innovation that's enabled by the Internet. It's interesting because we're, we're dealing with this legacy of suburbs here, right? Yes. Where all these people live in places where there's, there's going to be drag if you want to shift away from that. You're going to have to rebuild city centers so there are walkable areas. Yeah. I mentioned Jim Kunstler because he basically started from that perspective of looking critically at suburbs and then following up on the consequences of that fixed investment. And so he feels that we're trapped between um, the sunk costs, it's called. Like, we've invested so much in this infrastructure of, of interstate highways and suburbs that we can't let go of it. And yet it's costing us more and more energy and time for less and less yield. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's also Joseph Tainer's um, analysis is that the return on all this investment just gets smaller and smaller. And then you reach a, a threshold where it implodes then you start wondering, well, what are the consequences of that? And, and one, one avenue of thought is the suburbs become the new ghettos. Let's just say, in a hypothetical scenario, we got rid of a lot of the waste. Even if you do that, we're still faced with a scenario where we have an economic model that really only knows how to grow. Even if the, the rate of rise is much slower with an efficient economy, is it still always going to increase the material footprint anyway? Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think you've identified sort of the nub 
of global capitalism, which is based on this, this always got to be more, more material wealth and more financial wealth that can be distributed and to more and more people. And so um, Jeremy Rifkin wrote a book called The End of Work a few years ago. And um, the thrust of his thinking was technology is reducing the need for human labor to such a degree that paid work is no longer going to be a system we can count on to distribute the essentials of life. I think we see that more and more as um, the ability of software, automation, robotics keeps advancing up the food chain from low-skill labor to higher-skill labor. And so then we, we face a crisis, perhaps less of, of material wealth or exploitation of resources to we just don't have enough paying work anymore to support this this sort of consumption. And so then we go, well, what's beyond paid work? And then you go, well, in my mind, we have to go back to a community-based thing where you can have a good life, but you have very little exposure to the financial economy. You don't need debt. You're not making enough to to borrow money, but you don't need to because there's a new uh, system of exchange that takes a surplus that the economy generates and distributes it to the community based less on on your market value of your labor and more on what you're contributing to the community locally. But is there enough of a demand for that at the end of the day? Are there enough jobs where we just have so many damn people that they can't all be working at soup kitchens and being funded by their friends' donations in the community, living a very ascetic lifestyle? Are we just dealing with a giant numbers problem? My sense is there's a ton of undone work but that there's only two sources of, of funding for it in our current system. Either the government borrows the money by selling treasury bonds or local municipal bonds, or it skims the money from some private sector enterprise or individual with taxes. Or the market economy identifies some profit in this thing that will generate enough money that they can pay people to do it. And so I think of things like, well, what about a bike lane or a bikeway? Now, we all know that bikes are good and that uh, they are healthier and they reduce pollution and they also are good for the urban economy. You know, like people on their bikes will stop and go to local businesses that they happen to see because they're, they're able to do so. They're on their bike and, and so on. And so there's, there's this multiplier effect that's been shown with having bike lanes and bikeways that are safe. I don't want to sound too fanatical about it because there's a lot of communities where biking doesn't work because the weather's extreme or the distances are too great. But I mentioned bikeways because there's so many benefits to them, but our system doesn't provide any way to cost that. The government doesn't count cars that are not on the road (laughs) because somebody's riding a bike. They don't measure the health improvements from riding a bike. We only measure how much money we're blowing on people that had a heart attack, not the people that were saved from having a heart attack because they've been riding a bike for 10 years. So there's no benefit to the government or the market economy to creating a bike wing. It's like, well, who's going to pay for it? There's no profit in this. And there's no political demand strong enough. And so um, I I look at this as a a classic model where the community would then look at the value of a bike lane and they would take resources that had been uh, made available from the surplus generated elsewhere. Maybe it's by taxes, maybe it's by donations. And then the community gets to decide how to spend the money without regard to profit or lobbying. And so you think that's something that could be done in, say, a more, a lower production economy? 
Yeah. Because in this case, you deploy a bunch of people out to make the bike lane. Yes. Um, but, you know, now we, of course, think, we well, we've got professionals who know how to pave roads. You've got da-da-da-da-da. But if we have an, an economy that's sort of moved beyond a lot of the traditional employment roles that we have, do you have a bunch of people who just kind of volunteer at different causes and can't really put in a bike lane? To some extent, do you need a really specialized, stratified economy to be able to achieve something like paving a road, which seems like a very technical job that maybe couldn't be done in this sort of local craftsperson way? Yeah, I think um, I think you've raised a very uh, important issue that I often write about too, which is preparing ourselves for like a new mode of work, which I call hybrid work, like maybe acquiring skills across a, a spectrum of things as opposed to the specialization, which we all know that's kind of the, the model that we've been following for decades, which is the more specialized your skills, then the higher value your labor has. And of course, in terms of being a surgeon or a pilot, we understand that these are high value positions because there's very few people who qualify. But the number of people that are in that role might be five or 10% of the economy. And then the other 90% of us are generalized or our skill set's not quite that unique or difficult to reach. So kind of to go back to the point, I'll mention an example from the UK, from Britain, where a lot of local governments are finding they don't have enough money to fund everything they want to, just like here. And so at least one town in Britain, they've come up with a solution where there's one paid city worker who drives the truck with the asphalt to fill potholes. And then there's volunteers who then he teaches or leads. And so then the pothole filling crew is one paid guy and like five volunteers. And, of course, you go, well, how are the five people paid? And, of course, in, in Britain, it's a welfare state, so they, they're getting some sort of social benefits. And what I'm kind of proposing as an alternative is the community would get whatever money we now devote to social services rather than the individual so that people would have a chance to contribute rather than just getting a check in the mail and then sitting down and watching TV and feeling depressed about their lack of meaning in their life. That The only way that you could get um, housing and, and food and all the stuff that, that social services provide is you would have to contribute to the community. And I think the key word here, I think, is reciprocity. And that's what we've lost. We, we only know about the reciprocity of money. In other words, I provide my labor to you and you pay me. And then I go out and I do some more financial trades. But in terms of like my involvement in the community, there's we've lost that reciprocity. I think something that, that comes to mind for me is always that if you've got that, say, parallel to a market economy, it seems like you might have people who are playing this bigger financial game always able to sort of ooze in and co-opt and corrupt those local systems. Yeah, you've brought up a critical question about this iteration of global capitalism we're in. And if you take, um, say, thinkers like uh, Wallerstein, his idea was... Um, the teleology of capitalism is always expanding your asset base, which is what you just spoke to. And so within that teleology, if there's some way to monetize or profit from something that's outside the existing financial system, then those profit centers will attempt to take it over. But the question that that world systems approach raises is, what if we're at the end of this iteration of capitalism? 
Because this iteration of capitalism only works if there's enough people that can earn enough money from their wage labor to support what I call the financialized economy. Like, in other words, it's all based on debt. You know, you want to have a house, roof over your head, big debt. You want to go to college, oh, here's another giant amount of debt. You want to have a vehicle, oh, more debt. So really, it's sort of like, what would we have if debt was eliminated? Well, you'd eliminate this iteration of global capitalism. (laughs) So you think there could be another form of capitalism that wouldn't be based on perpetual growth? Yeah, I think it's possible or that it would be um, much more free form and anarchistic. There might be high growth in one area and and like stable or slow growth or even decaying uh, situations elsewhere, but that we'd have a localized and perhaps more fragmented situation I'm, I'm struggling here to describe something that I see that the, the internet allows for all these connections at a higher level. We can be more like a beehive. In other words, where the bees have a, a system for communicating and uh, organizing their labor, which appears chaotic and random, but is actually highly efficient. And it's um, this thing within systems analysis, it's called self-organizing systems, where each individual unit, in this case, like our, in our example, a bee, does not have a tremendous amount of intelligence. It has a tiny brain and has a very few uh, ways of feeding back information and communicating with um, other bees. But nonetheless, it creates an immensely complex system from really small pieces. And so I think a lot of people see the potential in that as being the basis for a new global capitalism. It seems like there's a real question of human nature here, which I find very interesting. You know, with the bee analogy, are we bees? Can we self-organize in that way? Or are we a hierarchical animal that naturally self-organizes in ways that are very pyramid-like? Do we seek the simplicity of the hierarchy rather than the chaos of the emergent or self-organizing system? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And I think um, like a lot of things in human nature, I guess you can say yes to both. If we look at our primate cousins, we can say the chimpanzees are extremely hierarchical and brutally so in in enforcing the hierarchy. And yet we also have the orangutans and other primate cousins who are individual, who are isolated typically. They don't form groups that much. And so you say, well, gosh, we seem to have both of those characteristics. Is it creating a balance between those? And you go, well, what's the balance in a centralized system? And what I see is the federal government is an excellent example of a system with increasingly diminishing returns on its centralization. Like it it sucks up more and more of the resources and it provides less and less really. In its initial growth phase, say in the 20th century, centralization as a whole paid all these dividends. You know, um, that the larger the company or the government got, then uh, the more efficient it could come. And it's like, they call it the efficiencies of scale, you know, and the idea that that's an endless process is perhaps just flat out wrong. And that actually maybe we've reached a point where we've topped out on the efficiencies and now it's actually costing us the more we centralize. Democracy is not becoming more democratic as a result. It's actually we're getting a less democratic nation as a result. And the economy is becoming more fragile from this centralization into the Federal Reserve and the executive branch. So we're getting um, actually a negative yield on, on more centralization. So then It would be natural to say, well, then we need to try the new model beyond this. The next teleology will be decentralization because it's simply way more efficient. Part of the premise of this project is looking at different historical moments where it seems like a social system has ceased working. And there are a lot of people in a culture talking about, well, what do we do next? And all these crazy ideas are on the table. But of course, what I wonder is, does that lead the change proactively or does that happen 
after the change is already underway? Are we, as Joseph Tainter said, only responsive to the price mechanism? Yeah, I think you've identified really the key question of the era. Like, say, if we go back to the printed word, you know, the Gutenberg press and the sudden explosion of technology, which we consider sort of primitive, like, oh my gosh, you make paper and you print it. But that explosion of knowledge created immense changes because uh, average person could now have access to a scale of knowledge that was only attainable to a handful of scholars a few decades before. Maybe what we're really asking is, can we take the kind of technological change that we're used to transforming the world literally in a decade? Can we extrapolate that to social innovations or are those unattainable? Are those in some other scale that we, we can't really apply the technology model? And I, I'm a little more hopeful, I guess, that technology model is the social innovation model because the technology revolution of the internet has enabled the spread of all these ideas that can be applied. They're practical. There was something like technology, you know, you could have given me a, a new computer in the mid-90s with an internet connection, and I would have gone, oh, well, this is exciting. It opens up all these doors, but it doesn't demand sacrifice, right? I mean, sacrifice in terms of learning it, a little time sacrificed. But it seems like this would be like, you're proposing, well, here's a system that that may be hurtling towards destruction, but doesn't seem that way to most people who are looking at it. They're just not reading those sources. They're not looking at the same things that you're looking at or that other people are looking at. And so what you'd be asking them almost is like, make this big sacrifice so this thing doesn't drive off a cliff, even though you think it's not driving off a cliff. So it seems like there's something different between adapting to a new technology and adapting preemptively to a new social model. Yeah, I think you're right. And then we, I think you're raising a point that goes back to human nature, which, um, at least from my point of view and my own personal experience, is none of us change until we have to. As you mentioned, that Tainter mentioned, people um, find an amazing ability to innovate and to adapt when the price of something like goes up tenfold. They suddenly find some way around that. And so then we're really asking, is that process going to be so disruptive that we're going to lose the, the system? Right. I, I tend to look at the material culture and say, if it's extremely fragile, that culture, that society, that economy is, it could be in real big trouble. I would think the next 10 years are, are really um, going to be extremely interesting. There's going to be resets of systems, and whether it's going to be messy or not, well, it's totally up in the air. I'm thinking of my conversation with the philosopher Lawrence Torcello when I said, what's the crisis of the present? He said, it's stupidity. <laughs> and, you know, so when we think about stupidity and having to like, deal with these resets, and how do we do that? Do we have the maturity to do that? There's a really interesting question there in terms of like, how do we even perceive reality? Because education plays such a role in like, what data we choose to take in the complexity of systems that we can see. But when we talk about stupidity, my favorite example of that as a, as a sort of a joke about it is The Onion had a parody where it said, only 16 people in the U.S. qualify to drive their cars. <laughs> that if you, were, oh, if, you were, if you were entirely strict about your, you know, right. that, that would be true. You yeah. know, that why do we allow 200 million people this freedom to kill other people. Then when we're talking about, you know, you hit this crisis moment and we're allowing them to vote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and I think Torcello's thrust was like, boy, we sure need to work on education first so we extend the term that people are thinking in. 
And actually, I think that was the only bit of optimism in my conversation with Joseph Tainter. And he doesn't think it'll make any difference, but he thinks you have to try with education first to extend people's time frames so they're at least cognizant of the crises that they're creating and dealing with. And then we come into the biological limits. How is that just an intellectual concept or can we start changing our behavior for that? And then that's when the, the price is everything guys tend to come in and they, they tend to win that argument because people talk about different things about their value system, but they actually only respond generally to price. But it also raises this notion of um, that uh, Douglas Rushkoff wrote his latest book is called uh, Present Shock. Mm -hmm. And he's referring to the 1970 book Future Shock, which was a big deal way before you were born. <laughs> and that um, what the idea behind future shock was, the world is, is changing so rapidly that it's exceeded our biological ability mm -hmm. to process this rapid change and make sense of it and adapt to it. Mm -hmm. And so then we basically enter a stage of being overwhelmed and incapable of processing everything. And so Rushkoff and probably many other people have concluded we've reached that point now. Right that the internet has speeded up so much the input that we're receiving that we literally have lost the ability to track a narrative. And that our sense of time has now been compressed. Everything happens in the present. Mm -hmm. That's really destructive, obviously, to like the thing we're talking about, which is we need a longer term point of view here. Right. And what's interesting, you know, when I talked to Rushkoff and I was trying to ask him, like, where, where are you going with this? What kind of future do you want? He was so into the, the present shock thing that he said, like, I'm not even concerned about that. I'm concerned about what we can do right now in a way that really resembles stuff that we've been talking about. You know, not as organized, but he was just saying, you know, have dinner with your neighbor. Pull out of the big system as much as you can in a way that makes me think now, as you're talking about resilience, it's like, ah, there's a resonance there. You know, Rushkoff was saying, can you knit something at home? Okay, well, that's not everything, but start there very pragmatic and maybe not it it might seem remarkably unambitious to a lot of people but i think he feels that we're so stuck in this present shock that asking for any more than that is just asking too much this raises another issue which i i think about a lot because i'm i'm 59 and so yes i'm a baby boomer and so yes i'm to blame for all these problems um, <laughs> certainly my generation has a lot to answer for i will be the first to say that Having lived through, as a child, the 60s and the early 70s, I think that that era is interesting. There was a kind of a counter-revolution or a reformation of the whole consumerist mentality that we now call the counterculture. And it's often derided or marginalized now because the baby boom generation quickly dropped that and bought back into the consumerist mentality with total vigor. But I think that it shows that you can have a social revolution that has an economic and a religious aspect. I mean, like, in other words, Christianity changed in the 60s as well with the Jesus Freak movement mm -hmm. and um, a lot of growth of, like, marginal churches and exploration of Eastern thinking and trying to integrate that into Christianity. And, and so the possibility of broad-spectrum change just the last 50 years proves it, it, it is possible. It is. And we could look at 1968 in terms of like Paris and Czechoslovakia. And right. It's not just a U.S. phenomenon is what I'm saying. Or in a negative example, the Cultural Revolution in China. 
you can have this broad spectrum change that, that touches on all these different things. And again, it's not a centralized idea or a centralized authority creates it. If we were to call that the conversation, which is something that we do periodically in here, that certainly seems like the last one we had, you know, and where did that come from? I mean, some people say, and I think you could make the case that it was all about the discovery of new supergiant oil fields in, in the North Sea and Alaska and, and West Africa, and that everything that was had a momentum for changing the kind of consumerist version of capitalism teleology vanished in a flood of cheap oil. If we uh, are no longer finding these kind of gigantic new sources of cheap energy, mm-hmm. maybe the ground will become fertile again for a social revolution or everything's on the table again. That's a really interesting way of putting it because, you know, something I've been thinking about as we've been talking is kind of economic determinism. How much of us is just a reactive animal dealing with scarcity and supply, you know? Yes. And, and all of this philosophical stuff is just, it's just the wrapping paper we put on it to give ourselves a sense of dignity, you know? But, <laughs> but uh, yes. maybe that description can bridge this a little better where you can say, well, okay, so yes, we're reactive to all of these economic forces, but when they're scarce, then there's a place for this conversation and the social stuff and individual agency and leadership and all of those things to really play a role in deciding how you deal with it. Maybe if there's unlimited wealth, then maybe we do act in really predictable and selfish and shallow ways. But maybe when there's limited wealth, then you get a little more variety. I hadn't really thought about it in the way you just described, but I think you've nailed a a key dynamic of our era, is that when there's immense uh, surplus, and the decision-making is, is, um, can be really loose because there's so much wealth, we can afford that sloppy decision-making. And so what you're saying is it becomes, we only have to start thinking clearly in scarcity. And I think that's a, a very powerful dynamic. So I, I think um, we're, we're going to experience that time that we're talking about when scarcity occurs in, in the next decade, and that, that where decision-making will have to really sharpen up. I kind of go back to the Pareto principle that the 4%, the vital few, influence the 64 and then the 80%. And so, But that's got to be after a crisis. Well, actually, I think it's actually got to be before, because what you're doing and all the people that you talk to, and I don't try to put myself in some sort of like uh, that I've got the answers, but what we're doing is we're talking about things, and some of the people you have talked to I consider part of the 4% who are laying out all these alternatives and different ways of thinking and approaching things, and that those will catch on like fire when the time is right and when people are looking for alternatives, they'll already be there. If we, if we didn't talk about it and if you didn't do your work and the rest of us didn't do our work, then we really would be in a tight spot because we wouldn't have any alternatives already laid out. So as, as we look towards this different paradigm, are you optimistic that the things that you hope to see will happen? I'm optimistic because of the vast explosion of of knowledge and sharing of knowledge and models because of the internet. And and that puts one of my feet in the um, technology is going to save us magic camp. But I don't really think of myself as being in that camp for the simple reason as I see as an extension of the printing press revolution. In other words, all you're really doing is enabling the average person to access far more knowledge and skills than they could have otherwise. It seems like ultimately your faith is in knowledge and the freedom to use it. 
I think, I think that summarizes my viewpoint very well. Better than I could myself. So there we have an interview that is really non-dogmatic, very pragmatic. One of the things that I really liked about this is it felt like we got to um, follow trains of thought for a while. There have been a lot of interviews where people say, here's an example of a magic technology. And I go, okay, and maybe I ask one or two follow-up questions. Maybe I don't have time for it. But in this case, Charles said, okay, fabricators. And I said, well, all right, but do they make this really complicated form of electronics equipment, which is something that I always wonder, right? You can't say fabricator is a panacea and then just let it go. And he said, well, okay, here are some ways in which that could still be produced. And here are some other things that couldn't be produced by that. And oh, by the way, here's a way it could be scaled. And maybe it felt like we got a little bit lost in detail, but part of me didn't edit that because I wanted to show that we went down those roads. It actually really kind of inspired me, and I, I like that he connected his ideas to uh, a lot of works that actually I'm kind of interested in myself, End of Work, James Howard Kunstler's book, Present Shock also, Moreshkov, uh, really interesting stuff. And kind of what I wanted to see was more of those particularities, actually, a little bit maybe beyond the economics. And Wait, a, you wanted to get lost in the weeds more? Yeah, I did, actually. <laughs> because, But I mean, I think that just says that I was on board with well, his big picture. And uh, what I kind of wanted was some of the more of the policy stuff talking about the bike lanes, the community gardens, that farmer's markets kind of thing. Those things are kind of taken off around the country right now. But I think there's just so much more that small communities need to do to kind of create those parallel systems. But I think a lot of people are wondering, well, what do you do after you create that community garden plot? What do you do after you get that bike lane in? What else can a small community do? So it's almost like the question you're asking is, are the current parallel systems remotely big enough to handle these challenges? Or do we need like a toolkit for small towns to make much more complicated parallel systems? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm interested in. I'd like to know what that would be. What would that new whole earth catalog look like? We talked for three hours and I could have gone down that road. I think with Charles, you could probably go back and say, hey man, we had a bunch of thoughts about this. Do you want to riff on these ideas more? And I'm sure he would say yes. I was also really sort of fascinated by these parallel communities I had a little bit of a problem with it. You know, there's the farmer's markets and bike lanes, which make sense. They exist in, in our communities now. Then there was sort of the next step where he's talking about those in conjunction with this sort of post-work thing. And, and you start getting to these reciprocity-based economies, which also sound kind of idyllic and, and, and utopic in their way. But he has them existing parallel, right? And in some ways feeding off of the surplus of the larger growth-based economies that we currently have. And I guess my question is, how do you protect those small economies from the growth-based economy? I mean, if you view the growth-based economy as this sort of monster devouring everything, which I think a lot of people we've talked to do, some don't, obviously, how do you preserve this little more idyllic, utopic community in the face of that. I'm pulling this from a lot of a lot of conversation that was edited out of what we're posting here. But my guess would be that he would feel, well, you know, these parallel systems, they just need to exist as almost reminders of an idea. Reminders that you can do it in this other way. Maybe it doesn't need to be a full-fledged economy. Maybe it isn't ever going to successfully compete with the larger growth-based economy, but you just need to have those farmer's markets there 
So when the growth-based economy crashes face-first into a wall, which he does expect, you have models of development. There have been other thinkers in this project who've talked about similar things. Chuck Collins mentioning that really what you need to do is you need to have ideas in place. And that ideas, when they're needed, they can spread really fast. So it's just what you need to do is you need to have the ideas more than have like a fully functioning parallel economy. It actually kind of reminds me of some of the work that people in the local farming movement conduct. Think of the seed-saving type of farmer, gardener. They want to make sure that that seed continues into the future. But for that to happen, you have to have somebody actually using that seed. You can't just put that seed in a seed bank. Somebody actually has to use it. I, I, I like that. You need to actually use it to preserve it. And my big takeaway from this conversation was was right there at the end. He was talking about what knowledge and conversation are good for. And it's, the conversation is useful because it lays the groundwork for, for the things we'll need when we're all fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting. But it did leave me thinking that, like, this is a collapse scenario, which is pretty rosy. And that's rare in this project. This is The Conversation, and that was Charles Hugh Smith, recorded on June 10th, 2013, in Berkeley, California. <laughs>